Sorry guys, I have to press like 14 buttons to start, which is great. Hello. Um, yeah, so if y'all don't know me, as Jonathan said, I am related to Brittany by marriage. Um, so yeah, uh, I have met a lot of you, and if we haven't gotten the chance to get to know each other, I would love to. Um, I'm like 78% awkward when you first meet me, and then as the days go on, I'm like 54% awkward, so it just keeps going. Um, cool, so I'm excited to be here tonight. Uh, I'm excited to continue going through First John. So. Um, I think it's, it's, it's a really cool privilege, a really cool experience when you have the opportunity to walk through a book of the Bible in its entirety to just get the full context of it. And so I love that Jonathan's been doing that first, John. It's super cool. And it's very practical. In many ways, it's challenging. In many ways, it's very encouraging. In many ways, it's confusing, mysterious. Um, and I think it explains the gospel really well. And it also challenges us really well. So today we are going to be in 1 John chapter 5. I'm going to be speaking from the first five verses, which is 1 through 5. Um, so if you want to turn there in your Bibles and read along, that's where I'm going to be. So this is the Word of God. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world, except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Pray with me. Father, You are good. You're mighty, you're holy, you're sovereign, you're powerful. Um, I thank you so much for giving us your word, for revealing yourself to us through your word, for um, being kind and wise and uh, good enough that you give us this revelation of yourself that we can get to know you. Um, it's such a privilege and... I guess along with that privilege, I pray that, that um, it's your word speaking tonight, that it's not me interjecting, um, that it's not me inserting the gospel according to Daniel, but, but that it's your gospel that's preached, that it's your word that is spoken. I pray that if I say anything that, that doesn't match up with, with you as you've, you've, as you've revealed yourself in your word, Lord, I pray that it falls on deaf ears. I pray that it's forgotten. I pray that it's cast away. Thank you for your servant, John, for um, how you used his ministry and how you now use his ministry to bless us 2,000 years later. I pray these things in your son's name. Amen. So, um, I guess along with, with a lot of the letters in the New Testament, so the New Testament is like a ton of different genres of writing, and a big chunk of them is letters. Right, and so it's letters written 
by uh, something's going on over there. I don't know. Okay, cool. It's it's letters written by real people to real people with with real purposes in mind, right? So whenever you see someone writing a letter in the New Testament, it's not like they were just like I'm just going to write a letter for the heck of it, right? Something is going on, and that person is writing something to address that something. That's a lot of somethings. And this letter is no different. Now, First John is a little confusing because it's a little hard to tell who John is writing to. People debate, is he writing to a specific congregation and then it just spread around, or did he write it with the intent to uh, have this letter passed around? But because sometimes it's a little hard to tell, like a lot of the the letters that this guy Paul wrote, he wrote a lot of the rest of the New Testament, um, he directly addresses them to people, right? He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ, yada, 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 say hi to Priscilla for me, say hi to this person for me, and you know, whatever. Um, John doesn't do that in this letter. It's kind of unusual. So, so it's a little difficult for us to, to know for certain who the exact audience is. And I bring that up, I, I use that preamble, because I think for this passage in particular, it's, it's important for us to understand the audience. It's important, to us, or it's important for us to understand what type of person John is writing to. Because if we miss out, if, if we get this wrong, if we, if we misinterpret the audience, I think that we can misread this passage. And what's supposed to be a passage about, about uh, perseverance, about encouragement, about this is how you can know that you're saved, all of a sudden turns into a passage of despair. It turns into a passage of to-do lists. It turns into a passage of this is how you can work yourself into righteousness. So let's do away with that, okay? And we do away with that by, by having a clear picture of the type of person that John is writing to. All right, and we, we get that in the first verse of chapter 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Now pay attention to that grammar. Because what John isn't saying is he's not saying, if you want to be born of God, just believe in Jesus. Right? That's our, that's our to-do mentality. What John is saying is, if you believe in Jesus, that's because you've been born of God. So that does away with this to-do mentality. Right? All of a sudden, it's not, it's not a matter of what I'm about to tell you is a list of things you need to do. It turns into what I'm about to tell you is a list of things that's true of you if you've been born of God. It's not a list of things that, that you need to work your way into being a better Christian. And so, like, like any sort of letter written by an apostle or written by a pastor, he's answering a question. He could be answering one of two questions. He could be answering the question, how do I become a Christian? Or he could be answering the question, am I a Christian? The way we read this passage is going to dramatically change how you view the Christian faith. And so, based on, on this first verse, I'm pretty convinced that he's not answering the question, how do I become a Christian? I'm pretty convinced that he's, he's answering the question, how do I know if I'm saved? How do I know if I'm a Christian? If I'm a Christian, what is my life supposed to look like? 
And so all of a sudden we have a list of things, a list of, you could say behaviors, a list of features that isn't a to-do list. It's not even a checklist. It's a diagnostic. Right? It's answering the question of, am I a Christian? Am I saved? With, well, what does your life look like? So this, this passage, for that reason, can be challenging, but I think it can be encouraging. I think it can be helpful for us if, if we claim to follow Christ. I think it can be a source of great encouragement. To give some background as to, as to why this question might be salient for first century Christians, this idea of how do I know if I'm saved, I think is a question that we still ask today. Right? I know there have been moments in my life where I've thought to myself, man, am I even a Christian? Am I saved? How do I know? And there's a ton of, a ton of things that I turn to, right? A, a ton, of, ton of sources of encouragement that I try to latch on to. I think first century Christians weren't so different. So around this time, there was this thing in the first and second centuries called Gnosticism. Uh, and Gnosticism is kind of a weird name, but basically there were these guys who were going around uh, during the first and second centuries, and they were taking the message of the gospel. They were taking the truth of Christ's life, work, death, and resurrection, and they were distorting it. They were saying salvation is not dependent on this thing that this, this random Jewish guy did. Salvation isn't even really the stuff that Jesus says it is revealed in Scripture. Salvation is, is rising above the physical. Salvation is, is transcending beyond this physical plane. The stuff that's physical, the stuff that's fleshy, that's bad. Just automatically discard it. Instead, you're saved by some sort of secret knowledge or you're saved by some sort of metaphysical spiritual experience. And so these are, these are questions that, that early Christians are grappling with that John is writing this letter to. And I think it's funny that we're not that different. Because when I ask myself, how do I know that I'm saved? The two things that I turn to are, oh, well, I know all this theology. I know all this secret knowledge. I know all this doctrine. I know what the word superlapsarianism means. Clearly, I'm a Christian. Or, oh, well, I've had this spiritual experience. I've had this moment of revelation. I've had this transcendent, you know, worship event. But John is saying, well, actually, that's Gnosticism. That's not what you turn to. What you turn to, the thing that tells you, how do I know if I'm saved? He says it at the very end. He says, everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. How do you know if you're saved? Do you overcome the world? Cool. Easy. Done. <laughs> Great. We can finish, right? Now, this, this phrase, overcome the world, is complicated, um, and it's been used before. Uh, John uses it a lot. Uh, and I think the, the simplest definition that I can give for this word world is is all the things that compete for your worship, that compete for your heart. And so to overcome the world is to overcome, to, to defeat those things that compete for your worship, 
that, that compete for your heart, that try to, to take the place of God for you. So for everyone who has been born of God has been able to vanquish those things that compete for their heart. Is that any easier? I don't know. This is, I think, this is such an honest passage, and, and I think we need to take it on its terms. Okay, because, because when John is talking about overcoming the world, he's not talking about some sort of, um, some sort of like 20th century liberation theology type thing, where we're overthrowing governments and we're, you know, establishing new governments and all this stuff. Um, I think it's something more, and I think it's something more personal. So what is it? What does overcoming the world mean? Now contrasted with this, this Gnosticism of secret knowledge or spiritual stuff, right? overcoming the world I think is a lot more fleshy, a lot more incarnational. Right? The incarnation is Jesus becoming a human being. That's, that's what makes Christianity such a complicated religion. It's, it's a matter of Christianity isn't about escaping this right? as much as we might want to. That's what Gnosticism is. Christianity is about redeeming this. And so overcoming the world has to do with redemption. It doesn't have to do with escape. So what does that look like? It narrows down to three things. It narrows down to faith, it narrows down to love, and it narrows down to obedience. So if you're a note taker or if you have a Bible that you don't mind scribbling all over, um, faith, love, obedience. The faith is, is pretty clear, and, and I think John sums it up by, by saying that uh, in verse 4, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Our faith. What is that faith? We, we see in verse 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And in verse 5, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Let's pause here. Let's think about how, how crazy it is that we claim that some random homeless Jewish guy was God. We're all nuts. Let's think about how crazy it is that we believe that some guy that we haven't seen physically, right, who claimed to be God, he was just some random carpenter from the desert, claims to be God, and then these other guys who lived thousands of years ago that also we've never met, they wrote it down, and then we read it one day, and we were like, yeah, that sounds reasonable. Everyone who believes that Jesus the Christ has been born of God. If it, if it wasn't for being born of God, I think it would be impossible for this to be reasonable. Right, so, so don't, um, don't look at this notion of belief, this almost like this condition of overcoming as a thing that I have to do. Right, don't look at it as, oh, if I'm a Christian and I want to overcome, then I have to will myself into belief. That's exhausting. The second thing is love. 
When we keep reading, the fa- uh, everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey His commandments. So, the grammar here is a little weird, but basically what it's saying is, if you love God, you obey His commandments. If you love God, you love the people of God. And you love the people of God by obeying the commandments of God because you love God. Pretty circular. This, um, I think it's really cool that you guys have, have been zeroing in on this notion of love this semester because there is a crisis of love in our culture, in our, in our history, in, in our period of time. We don't really know what love is, really, as a people, as a society. And yet John is saying that you want to know if you're a Christian or not? Do you love? Do you love God? Do you love God's people? Oh my goodness. This is so hard. There are some people who post on Facebook, and I'm like, man, we're going to be in heaven together, but mm, I don't know about you. But John's saying, if you're a Christian, you love that person. Because that person's a child of God. And in doing so, you actually love God. And then we have obedience. This is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. I like to think that that when John was writing this, he had like a smirk on his face when he wrote that part about his commandments not being burdensome. Because sometimes I read God's commandments and I'm like, this is exhausting. This this is contrary to, to what I want a lot of the time. And so, the reason why this is a challenging passage, the reason why I've wrestled with it so much, is that if we look at it at face value, what it's saying is, you want to know if you're a Christian? Do you have faith that Jesus is Christ? Do you love God and His people? And do you obey God's commandments? That's how you know if you're a Christian. And then I look at my life, and I think to myself, I mean, my faith in Jesus is pretty imperfect. My faith in the gospel is pretty imperfect. There are moments where I have doubts and I struggle and I wrestle. And if I'm being honest with myself, I'm not, I'm not that good at loving. I'm not that good at loving other people. I'm not that good at loving God. Man, if I'm on this streak of, of just intense introspection, I break God's commandments all the time. And sometimes I feel like God's commandments are a burden. So that part that that we were talking about at the beginning, right, that framework of is this a to-do list or is it a truth? Is it a, a, a diagnostic? That's important. Because it's not a to-do list. It's not, again, it's not, do you want to be a Christian? Okay, then uh, just believe this thing that's really hard to believe and love these people that are really hard to love. Sometimes we Christians are really hard to love. I'm just going to put it out there. 
and then obey all these commandments, which, which sometimes don't, like, we can't reason why God makes the commandments that he does. And, you know, why can't I just do what I want? But it's not a to-do list. It's not, it's not a checklist. It's not, okay, so I don't fulfill these things, and, and therefore I have, to, I have to will myself, I have to exert myself so that I, I can make myself into a Christian. I think what John is getting at in this letter has a lot more to do with trajectory. I think he knows the, the temptation that his people, that the, the people of God face in answering the question, am I a Christian, with, with these paradigms of Gnosticism? What do I know? What have I experienced? And he's breaking that down, and he's saying, are you a Christian? Look at your life. Look at the trajectory of your life. Because he said before, we all sin. If you're, if you're going around saying that you don't sin, then you are lying, which is itself a sin, so you're sinning twice. Congratulations. <laughs> so I think what he's talking about is trajectory. And so when we look at something like this, there is a very real sense in which today, right, I might look at this list and I might think, man, I don't know. This isn't encouraging. But when I look at what the Lord has been doing in my life, when I look at the work of the Spirit in my life, the hard, gritty work, I think to myself, is my faith today in Christ different than my faith five years ago? Has the Lord worked in me so that He's shown me the glory of His Son? the glory of the truth of the gospel? Am I more convinced of the gospel today than I was five years ago? This whole love thing. Are there areas of my life where I, where I have struggled to love people, but I can see how the Lord is chipping away at my hardened heart? I can see how maybe today I'm able to love someone that five years ago I would not be able to stand. And this thing with the commandments, I think this is the one that, that gets me because, man, there's a lot of commandments, right? And we have a lot of hours in the day and it's just hard. But is my heart more inclined today to love God's commandments than it was five years ago, than it was ten years ago? And so I guess what I'm trying to say is it's, it's not this simplistic, you know, do I check off these categories? But, but it's about trajectory. Because if it's not about trajectory, then it's up to us, right? If it's not about the work that the Lord is doing in us, then it's up to us. And then we're back to these categories of what do I know, what have I experienced? We're back to these categories of I'm not a Christian, I guess, according to this thing, but now I'm going to make myself a Christian. And that's not what he's saying. So the victory that overcomes the world is our faith. The victory that overcomes the world is our faith. And notice how the, the argument kind of flows, right? If we look at uh, obedience, that obedience to God's commandments flows out of love. 
And that, that love for God and for God's people flows out of that faith. And what's that faith? That faith is predicated on an objective truth, the very real ministry that Jesus has done on our behalf. And so it's not up to us. If you're a Christian, this isn't a source of, man, I'm just so discouraged right now. It's a source of truth. It's a source of this is true of you. If you're in Christ, if if that faith is anchored to the very real work of Christ, then maybe, yeah, maybe you hate your parents today. But the Lord is working in you. Maybe you hate that person that goes to church and just annoys the heck out of you. But the Lord is working in you. Maybe you really struggle to tell the truth. The Lord's working in you. That's not a conditional. That's a promise. That's a truth. And I think that's a source of encouragement. So who is it that overcomes the world? The one that believes that Jesus is the Son of God. I think it's uh, deceptively simple and deceptively complex, but because our God is good, this passage is not a passage of despair. It's a passage of hope. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for your word. Thank you for the work that you're doing in us, in our hearts. Thank you for um, how you're chipping away at the hardness of our hearts and how you're working on us and how you're kind with us and patient with us. Um, I pray that we remember your words, that they would always be a source of worship and and humility. Um, Yeah, in your son's name I pray. Amen.